I could imagine myself reading another book involving this character because in a really weird way, he's likable, but not likable, you know? Like, he's like somebody you right. don't like, but can't hate. I, I don't know. No, that's good. I think that is the complexity of a character that it's someone that you might not like, but you can't really hate either. Because it's almost like yeah. this is a product of his time. Like he's yeah. existing in a space that is so foreign, but yet he seems right for it. Hello, party people. It's <laughs> Kofi, Laura, and Sylvia. Welcome to Bookish, a casual book club. Today, we will be talking about one of the great crime fiction writers, James Crumbly. And I will share a bit about how I came into reading his work. But first, Sylvia, you've done some background reading on him. If you could share with our lovely audience what you've learned about <laughs> Mr. Crumley. Yeah. Well, the first thing about James Crumley, if our listeners slash readers aren't already familiar with him, is that he comes from this sort of writing lineage that is the same sort of genre as Raymond Chandler. So apparently Crumley would introduce his work every time by calling himself the bastard child of Raymond Chandler, <laughs> which is very, very true if you, if you read his writing style and if you've ever read Raymond Chandler. But Crumley was born in 1939 in Texas and served in the military in the 50s in the Philippines. And then he came back to stateside and attended the Iowa Writers Workshop in the 60s. So it's pretty prestigious. It's like the top of the writing workshops. And it's a very literary group, right? And he actually started writing what is called like hard-boiled crime fiction. His work is described frequently as violent, and he's also described as sort of like the literary child of Raymond Chandler and Hunter Thompson, right? So uh, if that gives our readers and listeners an idea of his style and his subject matter. So he has sort of like the gumshoe detective and he's got a common one, just like Chandler did. For Chandler, it was Marlo. For Crumley, it's two. One is this guy named Milo, who is a violent drug and alcohol addicted womanizer. And the second one is Shigru, who is the detective in the novel that we are looking at, the private detective, who is a violent drug and alcohol addicted womanizer. <laughs> so um, very, very little difference between the two uh, in that sense. Cromley himself said, though, the difference between the two is that Milo's first instinct would be to help you out, whereas Shigru's first instinct would be to shoot you in the foot, which was <laughs> very... Which Very, uh, yeah, I was giving a nod, like, yes, because we, we saw that. We saw that happen in this novel. <laughs> After his MFA, he taught at the University of Montana, where he lived until he died. So Montana features prominently in a lot of his, in a lot of his work for that reason. And I thought was really interesting in the beginning of The Last Good Kiss, which is widely considered to be his best work um, in this genre, he has a little epigraph from the poet Richard Hugo, from which The Last Good Kiss gets its title, and he was good friends with Richard Hugo, who's a poet who lived in Montana as well. And Richard Hugo, as a poet, used to say, one of my favorite things from him is that language, if it just becomes a matter of communicating information, then it's dead. 
language is dying if that happens. Mm -hmm. And I definitely got a sense of that from Crumley's work where, because Crumley said one time in an interview that if the language isn't fun, there's no sense in writing. And more than the story itself is the kind of things that you can do with the language that was more appealing to him. And so you kind of get a sense of that in his writing as well. But yeah, he died in 2008 and he left behind this writing legacy that puts him squarely in that, like I said, that lineage with Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, the, the writers of these sort of detective crime novels. So Kofi, how did you get yeah. into reading Crumley? It was kind of weird. I wanted to do something creative for my dissertation. And I thought I was going to be a crime writer and having never read any crime novels, um, I, other than The Postman Rings Twice, I think I, I read that one, and Thin Man. That's oh. a, oh, and then I read Chester Himes, A Rage in Harlem. That was about it. And I did a draft or so, and I shared it with a committee member named Penelope Pelazon. And she basically was like, you need to read a little bit more. <laughs> you didn't need, you, it's not, she didn't say it was horrible, but her comments were like, you shouldn't be writing this. You haven't read enough. And, and she didn't say it in those ways, but basically that's what she got to. So I started reading more. I started reading crime fiction based in DC. And that's how I kind of stumbled upon George Pelicanos. And George Pelicanos sets a lot of his stuff in DC. It just so happens that he knew a teacher of mine named Frazier O'Leary, who was one of my teachers at UDC. And it was kind of weird because it kind of came in like a full circle. Like I discovered Pelicanos' work. And one of the things he mentioned was how he was a fan of James Crumley. And I had never heard of James Crumley. And so I just started picking a book from his. And so the first book I picked was The Last Good Kiss. And it was, it was the first page, but a lot of people quote the first sentence. It wasn't the first sentence for me. It was sort of the middle of that third paragraph where he's, he's finally found the subject because he's a, this guy, Shiguru, I, I think it's Shakraw because I supposed to be gay. I think it's a Gaelic name, but I could be wrong. It's Shiguru. It's Shiguru. All right, Shiguru. so Shiguru... He, he says it himself in another book. He says, Shug as in sugar and Ru as in Ru the goddamn day. That's how he that's how he, <laughs> he sells it. There you go. All right. And so, you know, it was he's wandered into this bar and he sees these people, their naughty faces and nasal accents belong to another time, another place. The Dust Bowl 30s and the rattle trap homemade Model T truck heading into the setting sun. As I sat down, they glanced at me with the narrow eyes of country people. Look at me over carefully if I were in a, as if I were an abandoned wreck they planned to cannibalize for spare parts. I nodded blithely to let them know that I might be a wreck, but I hadn't been totaled yet. They returned my silent greeting with blank eyes and thoughtful nods that seemed to suggest that accidents could be arranged. And a lot of his sentences <laughs> so loaded with this so it's kind of poetic but it's also very direct and you get a sense and a, a clear understanding of where he is he doesn't belong but yet he sort of fits in to the fine aspects of that that community and as he's going about searching 
well, he finds Trey Hearn, but then he goes looking for Rosie's daughter, which is in itself a different kind of story in a way that it's almost like a lost love. He's looking for a missing person, but yet there's some loss there. There's some longing there. And that becomes, I think, part of the reason why it's the last good kiss. Even though this isn't the last novel, it's actually his first novel about C.W. Shiguru. But it's this sort of, it's kind of like a coming of age, but yet he's middle-aged and he's kind of broken, but still somewhat noble as a character. Mm -hmm. And I think the character development is interesting. It is interesting if you think about the time period when it was written, it was definitely in the late 70s. The hippie movement was sort of in the wane. And so he sort of speaks to a lot of that. And I found just the book, just an impressive thing. And so I started reading The Wrong Case, The Dancing Bear and The Right Madness. I think that was the other book. So yeah, I just started becoming a fan. But I never wrote a mystery novel, <laughs> so you know, I just started reading them, and that became my my thing. So yeah, that's how I got into it. You know, it's it's <laughs> not something I would ever. You know, most of the crime fiction is written in like big major cities like L.A., New York. Maybe you could find some in Chicago, D.C., Baltimore, especially if you think about David Simon. But those are more like true life crimes, and not really crime fiction. But Missoula, Montana, that's not where I would think a hotbed of pr private eyes are coming from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he's, he's going fly fishing. Right. For, our, for our listeners, this guy's going like fly fishing and he's also like solving a missing person's case. And it's just very funny. And like, it's interesting to see that. There there's a lot of driving. Right. Yes, a there's lot. a lot of driving. It's very scenic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember I read Raymond Chandler in grad school. I think I have similar recommendation from someone that I knew, but, oh, I know that I read like an excerpt of his writing and I thought it was just so good. Like the way that he was handling the, the sentence, you know, the line, it was so tight and so punchy, but yet funny and irreverent and also really poignant and poetic. And I was surprised that it came from like a mystery crime fiction because I had like these ideas of what that genre was like, mostly caricature ideas, you know, but mm -hmm. once I read that and, and it really kind of opened my mind to like what is possible in different genres, that really set me on a kind of like a journey, I guess, for <laughs> this kind of writing. And one thing though, <laughs> you know, the writing is good when you realize how problematic these writers are <laughs> in their novels. Like, I mean, for listeners out there who want to pick this up it's a fast read you know it's an engaging read yeah. but it's also extremely offensive basically any people group you're part of he will offend you <laughs> like as a writer because <laughs> shigru these pis are rough around the edges they're that's the way they are you know but i realized like I was, I was trying to describe it to my husband i was like look if this guy were alive today and active on twitter he would be 100 percent canceled already <laughs> but his, <laughs> <laughs> but his writing is so good that even reading it now, even though I'm like, I, w I was rolling my eyes, I bookmarked some of the parts where I wrote ill, you know, <laughs> problematic male writer, <laughs> toxic masculinity, toxic, but the writing yeah. is so good. Yeah, the writing is so good. I was just like, oh, well, in some parts, the writing was so good. I was just sort of like, okay, 
able to tolerate it better, I guess, than I would have. I guess this kind of genre, even of crime or mystery or, you know, detective stories is not my usual cup of tea, right? But I was really interested to read it at your high recommendations, guys. And I did enjoy it. But like Sylvia was saying, there was a lot of eye rolling. Like, sure, every (laughs) woman who Mm -hmm. is near you wants to have sex with you, of course. (laughs) But I found that one thing that I did find interesting was the way, and, and Kofi, you were referring to this, the character building of this detective. And Mm-hmm. What I find interesting about this genre is that usually these writers like develop a character and then there are several novels, a whole series of novels with this character so that it becomes, you know, kind of a interest in the character as much as the mystery that you're trying to solve in each book, right? So what you're following right. is that particular character. And I think that's why in this sense, the development of the main character is so critical for a series like this to be successful. So I could imagine myself reading another book involving this character because in a really weird way, he's likable, but not likable, you know? Like he's like somebody you don't like, but can't hate. I I don't know. No, that's good. I think that is the complexity of a character that it's someone that you might not like, but you can't really hate either. Because it's almost like this is a product of his time. Like he's existing in a space that is so foreign, but yet he seems right for it, if that makes sense. So an example of that, as you guys are talking about it, is how if you notice throughout the book, like there's a lot of these like violent encounters. So even when he rolls up into this bar where he's finally found the first, this person that he's been looking for in the bar, like he almost immediately gets into a bar fight with the, these other bar people there. And it's a pattern throughout the book. He'll get into a violent fight, fisticuffs, whatever, gun shooting, whatever with other people. But then like immediately afterwards, they're like getting along. Like, oh yeah, I understand. (laughs) Or like, you know, they like have an amicable relationship right after they've beat the crap out of each other. And so (laughs) I thought it was so perplexing that like they have this violent interaction and then they're like, hey, sorry about that. Let me get you a bandage and send you to the hospital because I shot you in the foot. You know, like it's just like, <laughs> right. and it was a pattern. Yeah. 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 Like, like, um, like the him. guy and put him in the bathtub. They were very kind about it. It was a, prof- <laughs> he called it a professional beating, you know, <laughs> so, the, so nothing was broken, but, you know, they wrapped him in tape, stuck a sock in his mouth and yep. said, sorry, not nothing personal. <laughs> <laughs> no. but it was a clean it's, sock. It's a, that was their courtesy. It was a clean sock. Yes, <laughs> a clean sock. But it's that kind of thing where this is incredible. But I think he's also in the book, and I don't want to give too much away. I think, and and Laura, you mentioned this in a post on our Facebook page, that it's almost like it's meta in a way when he talks about art and writing, that in some ways mm-hmm. he's kind of talking about himself as being kind of like this hat writer. And so I think it's on page 89. Does someone want to read that part? I have it open. This is where he says, so he's talking about Trey Hearn as a, is a writer, right? So he's mm-hmm. saying about Trey Hearn's writing. All three novels were bestsellers, all made into successful movies, and perhaps because of his reputation as a poet, well-reviewed. 
But as far as I could tell, the books were fair hack work cluttered with literary allusions and symbols. And I, I laughed out loud literally when I read that. Fancy Drek, one unimpressed reviewer called them. The male characters, even the villains and cowards, cling to a macho code so blatant that even an illiterate punk in an East L.A. Pachuco gang could understand it immediately. The female characters served as stage props, scenery, and victims. And the stories were always incredible. And Kofi yes, just right. used that word incredible, right? Yeah. That's exactly and it's all this true one. about this novel. Exactly <laughs> <laughs> the novel. He summed up the entire novel. And if you want to read it, that's it. That's what you're reading. That's the, folks, that is the summary of this novel, basically. <laughs> And then, can I tell you, on page 213 later, Trey Hearn says the same thing about his own work. And it's actually in quotation marks. Like, he's, yes. he's saying it. He says, yep. he says, I can't stop, so I'm going to give in to listen. Listen, I know what sort of sentimental nonsense my poetry is. And I know what sort of macho dreck my fiction is. I'm as phony as my goddamn crazy mother, and so on. So I love that, like, sort of circles back later, and Trey Hearn says it about his own writing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it, it does feel like, I can imagine coming out of that Iowa workshop, you know, you, you're not Raymond Carver. <laughs> you're coming out, and you are, you know, you're a crime fight. You're a crime fiction writer, which... You know, the Iowa Writing Workshop, you know, that's not what they're known of producing, you know, that they're known to produce people like Flannery O'Connor. And I mentioned Flannery um, O'Connor, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this is just, it is hackery, but it's also fun. You get the sense that if C.W. Chagru was trying to find you, he would give an honest attempt. And that's pretty much what you want. If you're hiring somebody to find your lost loved ones, you want them to give it an honest attempt. But he's going to drink a whole lot <laughs> and get into a whole lot of fisticuffs and, and so forth. Yeah. In terms of tone, how did you ladies think of the tone of it? Because it seemed one way, but it kind of got a little light. Well, maybe lighthearted isn't the right word, but... The tone doesn't actually stay the same in each chapter. Sometimes it seems to be a little more light and reflective in some ways. Or did you think of it that way or not at all? Actually, now that I didn't think about it when I was reading it. But now that you mention it, I do feel like there were these moments where things seemed just so hilarious because how crazy these characters were and behaving. And then it would kind of go into these really serious moments or pages where it's much more serious and there's a lot of commentary about what's happened to some of these characters. And even, I think, the character's own tone, because I guess, mm. like people, their their moods change, right? Say so one moment they can be serious and another moment they can be you know, silly or, you know, just in a different emotional state, I guess. So there was a lot of, it was a kind of an emotional roller coaster of each of the characters, mm -hmm. <laughs> how sometimes they're so drunk, right, that they're not in their mm -hmm. right mind. And then another moment, they're completely sober. And the tone is sober at the same time. So yeah, I I, I could see that. I think I, I understand what you mean by that, the tone change. Yeah. 
for me, the tone for me changed whenever he was interacting with like people. And I actually came to enjoy those scenes the most because they were predictable and unpredictable at the same time. So Mm -hmm. one thing about Marlo, who is Raymond Chandler's PI and Shigru that I have always appreciated is the way that they read people. Right. Yeah, so like with Shigru, his instinct or automatic inclination when he meets someone to question them for the first time is automatically that they're lying to him right. and that they have something else like going on underneath what they're saying. And he's really good at picking that up because he's a detective, he's a PI. And a really great example of that is when he meets Betty Sue, who's a missing person he's looking for, Betty Sue's mm-hmm. boyfriend, who's the last person who saw her alive or who, who saw her before she went missing like 10 years prior. And, you know, he's kind of giving Shigru this sort of sob story about how he has never stopped looking for her. She was his first love and he's always sort of been obsessed about it and how he would even go to the morgue every time a Jane Doe was found just to see if it was her to check. And that that's kind of like the level of like obsession he had with this case and to kind of find her and that's how much he cared for her. And then, you know, Shigru kind of, he gets into like a verbal psychological fight with him. And then at the end, he basically calls him out and he says, you know, that he could see her boyfriend at the morgue doing this, you know, check every time. And he says, but I saw your face all scrunched up in disappointment every time you didn't find her under that rubber sheet. I know you're a nice person and all that, and you didn't mean to feel that way, but you did. And if I find her, you'll never hear about it from me. And I thought it was like, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like the way he reads people is so like spot on from what Mm -hmm. they say and what they don't say. And to me, that was like the most exciting part of it. But that to me is what also fluctuates the tone because the way he reads men and the way he reads women are very different too. Yeah, I agree with that. He does read people very differently, but he, and he's almost always very suspicious, even when he meets Selma Hines. You know, he's initially trying not to be suspicious, but he still checks the death date. He still checks for the death certificates. He still ends up questioning not just her, but also Catherine. And, you know, there's always this idea of, and I guess the question I kept, kept having, what is the last good kiss? Is it the thing? Is it the oh. pursuit of the people? Is it the the sort of this is his purpose to seek people out and find them, even though he seems reluctant to do it? But there's something about that thrill. That's something about that profession. And I wonder is that the last good kiss, or is it Trey Hearns pining away over the widow, or is it? what we make out of life and art. What is that last good kiss? And so I've never quite got that far to see, I mean, got that, where where, where was it for these characters? I was a little bit more, a little bit more literal and I was actually looking for a kiss. (laughs) Like (laughs) who's this kiss going to be with and which character is it going to be? Is it Melinda? Is it Betty Sue? Is it Catherine? But yeah, I, I the title did intrigue me mainly because it kept me wondering the whole time, right? And then and then eventually I couldn't figure it out, but it did sort of like 
it was kind of a thread throughout like what is this going to mean the last kiss what is that mm-hmm. what is that going to be a reference to but like you i didn't come to a conclusion about what that is but it's a good question maybe there is no conclusion maybe that we're all looking <laughs> for the last kiss and maybe that's just it it's the or that we've already had not- it and we don't realize <laughs> yeah like we had yeah. it and it and we got to go back and try to get it again but I see, I don't know, because like the Hugo poem from, from where it comes is sort of like, so, and this is kind of how I, I felt like Crumley deals with time in the book too. So like, he starts off with that famous opening line that by the time I caught up with Traher and he was getting drunk with a bulldog in a bar or something like that. And then he shifts, immediately he shifts back before that to show you how he got to that point. And then he brings you back to that bar, you know? And then for mm-hmm. Shagru, maybe as a reader myself, like, I kept thinking he was, we were looking at him broke down, but also like right at that cusp before he's totally like jaded and, you know, the actions that he does, like the fact that he doesn't want to be suspicious of people, but he is, you know, and almost every time he chooses to double check or to be suspicious of someone who seems like a good person, he's almost always right about having been suspicious of that person. And I really feel like there's a moment where he seems like a good guy deep down, but there's a moment where he tips over into complete cynicism and like jadedness, you know, and I think it's sort of at the end where you realize, you know, things would have worked fine, but they don't. And it sort of kind of shuts that light out forever. But at the same time, I also think Trey Hearn talks about too on like a writing level. What if this is the last good thing I ever wrote? What if the la- mm. this is the last right. good thing I ever write? And I think a lot of writers struggle with that too. I'm sure Crumley did, but you know, the poet Louise Glick used to say she feared the empty page because like every time she wrote something down, she, what if that's the last poem I ever wrote? You know, like what if mm. it doesn't come again or something? Everything <laughs> I write, I hate, you know, that kind of a thing. So I don't know, I was kind of reading it with those lens too, but you're right, like there's no real, inc- mm. there's no real conclusive, yeah. definite answer. I think we might be out of time now. So yes. I want to say thank you, Kofi, for introducing us to, uh, at least me, to this book. I, I had no idea about this writer, but it also made me kind of think about other detective novels that I have been reading. And I realized that most of what I have read are women character. So I, for example, I was reading Steph Cha's, like a trilogy of detective novels after we read Your House Will Pay. I got into that series. And it's just an interesting thing to be able to appreciate a thing for what it is and not necessarily only in comparison to other things. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And to appreciate what what it's trying to do to be its own thing. So even though it's not my cup of tea, I was really intrigued uh, through the read and I might give Raymond Chandler a try. (laughs) So thank you for that introduction. So our listeners, I hope you all are having a fun summer reading experience. And we'd love to hear what you're reading on. If you share with us on Facebook, look us up uh, bookish and our episode will air on Podbean, but also on YouTube. And again, please visit us on Facebook and leave us comments about our episodes and just share about your reading news. And maybe in the fall when we will do like a, I don't know, report back of what we read over the summer together. And you can look us up on Dragon Digital Howard Community College too. Thank you, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your time. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.